Welcome back to another episode of the Demand Efficiency Podcast with me, your host, Eli Rubel, formerly Elias, but hey, names are hard. This is the show where we unpack and benchmark the methods and tactics used to reduce CAC by the most efficient and fastest growing companies in tech. Frequent listeners will know demand efficiency is a leading indicator and North Star metric for teams focused on reducing CAC. And in each episode, we'll evaluate how the best companies in the industry are driving down their cost to acquire while still achieving remarkable growth. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode. Today, I am joined by Dan Fronin. He is the interim CMO at Picnic Health, the former CMO at Sendoso. Uh, always love my conversations with Dan. And today we're going to be talking about channel mix as the demand efficiency lever of the day. So why channel mix? Why is channel mix important? We're going to dive into a bunch of different subtopics here together, but channel mix is something that comes up. I think early stage companies tend to really struggle here a lot of the time because they are obsessed with finding a silver bullet as a channel or they believe that there's such a thing as one channel to rule them all. They just have to crack this one channel and then boom, their company is going to be successful. And what these early stage founders learn over time and pain really is that there is no silver bullet. And really it's about taking a multitude of shots on goal. It's about running a bunch of small experiments and figuring out where you can find signal. And that you know, no successful company was built on a single channel. And really, you need diversification of channel in order to see long-term, sustainable, and efficient scale. Another big sticking point within channel mix that companies often get held up on is they'll be successful in growing to some sort of minimum viable amount of revenue. Let's say they make it to $5 million in ARR. And the teams have been burning the midnight oil. They've been throwing spaghetti against the wall, figuring out what works, and things are starting to work. But then all of a sudden, they take the step back to figure out where they can double down, where they can make further investments, and realize they didn't have adequate tracking in place to actually know what is working at a granular level. And that's a scary moment. That's a moment where a lot of companies feel like they're on top of the world. And then when they go to their investors to raise their next round, they realize, well, shit, we don't actually know what drove this growth in a granular enough way to confidently reinvest in these channels and know that we're going to get the same return that we have in the past. And so it, they have to slow way down. They have to implement proper tracking, proper attribution before they can then move forward and have the data they need to make these sustainable, efficient bets. And so almost a word of caution for, or, or opportunity rather for the earliest of stage companies, don't sprint as hard as you can before having tracking in place. It, tracking always feels like a nice to have. Tracking never, you know, when we're talking about it, tracking feels like a must have. But in practice, these teams, they need revenue, they need a shot in the arm and tracking is, let's just launch the campaign. Let's get the campaign out there. Let's bring, the, bring quality opportunities into the pipeline that tracking initiative that you know the engineers haven't had time to deploy, let's just get that done after the fact. It's not going to kill us to launch this campaign. Well, this campaign turns into these campaigns, turns into a quarter, turns into H1, turns into last year really, really quickly. 
And it always is this kind of like kick the can, the more acute need is revenue. But then you get to that point, call it the imaginary 5 million in ARR line. And all of a sudden you're left asking yourself, well, what has worked all of this time? And a lot of the time these teams don't have an answer because they didn't have tracking in place and it was only a nice to have. So save yourselves the pain down the road by it's like the go slow to go fast mentality when it comes to tracking. I think the last big pillar here that we'll dive into more is around structuring teams such that you can launch a high frequency, a high velocity of experiments, hypothesis-driven experiments around channel without breaking the back of the team and without it being an unsustainable venture. Think about all of the conversion points that occur within channel mix, within establishing channel viability that can lead to a lower cost to acquire. We can be testing how we segment in channel, how we message in channel, the definition of our ICP per channel, the channel itself, the creative within the channel, the, you know, the, it just keep the list keeps going. There are a bunch of micro, micro adjustments that can be made within each channel that can be the difference between success or failure in a channel, cost to acquire viability or not in a channel. And so this all comes back ultimately to whether or not you can run a production line that can spit out these experiments in a sustainable way week over week without burning your team out. So again, org structure, how folks are gold and comped on running experiments, whether or not that's part of their comp or goaling. So a lot of good stuff to dig into. And Dan and I have a great conversation about all of this. So with that, let's get over to the lever and the conversation with Dan Fronin over at Picnic Health. All right, Dan. So today we're talking about channel mix and the importance channel mix plays in having an efficient demand program, having a scalable demand program. And one of the things in your role at Picnic Health you have done really, really well is have a highly diversified channel mix. So tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that and your approach generally to channel mix. Yeah. When I think about channel mix, I I go in two different directions. One is at the end of the day, whether B2B or B2C, it's still a certain number of brand impressions that get someone's attention. So that's where I believe channel mix is just really, really important to make sure you're showing up. But then I think what we all learned during COVID was some of us were heavily channel dependent on physical events, on even on paid digital in some ways. And when when everyone went to digital and the cost started to skyrocket and you didn't have your events and you actually had to come back and get back to the basics on on channel mix and what's relevant, like that's what guides my entire principle is is not being a one trick pony and really not forgetting about the awareness and the brand recognition that we all need to achieve. It's not just about the end result, which is the conversion, which we're all focused on, obviously, but it's just the result of good channel mix. And now let's talk tactically. I'm sure many of our listeners are in two, maybe three channels where they feel, okay, maybe one of them is their their performer, and then they've got two that that are doing all right. You know, you have in the demand efficiency survey, you have paid social, paid search, newsletter, industry-specific channels and associations, field events, cold outbound, social outbound, founder and exec relationships, organic and content programs. So well-diversified. <laughs> yep. How do you approach 
each new channel? Do you have a method for testing and, and, and rolling out a new channel? Yeah, absolutely. So what I've done over the past couple of months is a lot of channel diversification. So when I came in, it was really an outbound program. We had association with industry associations, and then we were doing field events. And paid digital and the SEO aspects are, are relatively new here. And when we were thinking about standing up paid digital, we were really thinking about it from two different angles. One is what demand is already out in the market that we can and should be capturing. And that's really more in, in search like Google, Bing, around category keywords, around competitors, and just naturally picking up some of the, the intent that's in the market. But then the second part of the paid strategy was really starting to get that brand recall, that brand recognition down into our target accounts that was really starting to create a digital air cover for our outbound prospecting. The fact that we're at a lot of events where we're trying to meet these companies and really having that be the tie together where it's not just cold outbound. It's not just showing up in an event. It's actually, there's a digital element sitting in between that that's really letting people know who Picnic Health is and how they can help their uh, business. Today's episode is brought to you by No Boring Design. Wow, what a name. No, we know this team well. We've brought them in to help with a number of engagements when design becomes a bottleneck for shipping campaigns quickly. Uh, also, when design is boring, right? A lot of B2B status quo becomes boring and it doesn't have to be. So we bring this team in, they level up the quality design and they remove design as a bottleneck to ship campaigns, content, product marketing assets, you name it. If it needs a design and you're hung up on it, this team can help. Um, somehow they managed to do this. I think their price point starting out is 2,500 a month. Uh, obviously goes up from there, but what a great resource. We've seen them firsthand do great work with Dropbox, Yelp, a number of our big clients they've been a part of. So check them out, noboringdesign.com, noboringdesign.com. You know, I know having rolled out these programs time and time again with some of the, the fastest growing companies in the Valley that whenever you, you know, the board is always asking for more channel diversification, Right. But at the same time, it's the marketing leader who has to put their neck out a bit and say, okay, we're going to make these bets. Here's how much time and breathing room we need to see these bets through. And some of them aren't going to work, right? Some will, some won't. Do you have a kind of a stop limit or loss you know, on, on either side around here's how much time and investment we should give a new channel before saying it's successful or saying it's not worth continuing to invest in? Yeah, I mean, I think some experiments are pretty cut and dry, like keyword families within Google. Like you're quickly going to know what the cost per click is. If you're testing a bunch of different offers and you're getting conversion, is that converting to pipeline and revenue? And those are like the cut and dry ones. I think when you get into you know heavier tactics that are supporting multiple channels, like an outbound motion coupled with digital air cover that eventually gets into digital acquisition that benefits the outbound, that's where the time limit and really talking to exec teams and boards and really letting them know outbound programs are not easy. They take upwards of anywhere from six to nine months to stand up and actually see flow through all the way to revenue. And when I think about building programs like that, it's not about the individual tactic that I want the board worried about. It's pipeline attainment and revenue attainment and letting the mix start to take shape behind that. 
Absolutely. So, you know, with this broad and diverse of a channel mix, obviously there's a lot of content, a lot of assets, just a lot of moving pieces, experiments, and so forth. What is your personal framework for keeping teams organized, both from a production standpoint and also measurement and reporting standpoint when you have this diverse of a mix? Yeah, so I'm a huge believer in every single program that we're running, whether that's an event, whether that's digital, whether that's a database program, defining what the pre-action looks like, what the during and what the post looks like. So for an event, it starts with actually booking meetings ahead of the show. The real action takes place at the show when you're meeting net new people, plus having the meetings that took place that you booked pre-show, and then the post is converting that all to pipeline. And the goal is for the teams to to own a project to completion. So what will happen a lot when you when you start to do more and more tactics, add more and more channels, is you start to create a to-do list, you stand it up, you cross it off of your list, and then you move on to the next one. And that's actually what creates waste within your marketing mix is not having the owner of the channel come back and report on it. So from a metric standpoint, we as a marketing team look at the performance of everything that we're doing weekly. So from a digital standpoint, that's simple automated reporting that comes into our Slack channels that gives us the visibility into what KPIs we're tracking and how we're hitting that. And then we'll have a conversation on it weekly as well. And you know something interesting that you brought up from a production standpoint, I've been finding a lot of success in running marketing production more in an agile way. So obviously, the team has OKRs that are aligned to the business that we're looking at at the high level for a quarter. But really bringing the entire team together and looking at things from a sprint standpoint and making sure we're all coordinated on our efforts to make sure that we have the right flow through from what we're doing from product marketing all the way through to demand, sales development, and then the sales team in general. Love that. The power of a Gantt chart when you have so many things in, uh, <laughs> in play can't be underestimated. Absolutely. Are there any common pitfalls that you see earlier stage or less mature companies making when it comes to channel mix? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the marketing and revenue community, but there are no silver bullets. So I think the common pitfall is that you stand something up and voila, like all your problems are solved. And that's just so far from the truth. It's really a series of different shots at your target that actually soften that thing up and, and show the success. So it's, I think, that first and foremost. And I think the second piece, and it's really on marketing and a common pitfall is that if you're running any kind of channel that requires coordination beyond just marketing, like it's incumbent upon marketing to think about what they need from their BDR team, what they need from their sales team to actually get the most out of each channel and then coordinate that effort and make it as easy as possible to get what you need from those teams. So it's really, in a lot of ways, losing the marketing ego and really being somewhat of a servant leader and understanding that it's for the greater good of revenue versus just leaving it to the list it's done. I'm going to go complain about sales now since they didn't do their part. That just doesn't get the job done. So there you have it. Channel mix. Turns out it's important. Turns out there's a lot of ways to get it right. A lot of ways to get it wrong. At the end of the day, it's not that complex. It's much more about discipline than it is you know, having some sort of secret trade sauce that only you know. There are no secrets. It's truly just discipline, rigor, and setting up your team for success and alignment in that pursuit. 
So let's talk about this motion. Is the idea of channel mix and the, and the ideas that we discussed in today's episode, are they specific to enterprise selling motion? Are they specific to product-led sales assist? I think for most folks out there, you already know the answer. The answer is no, they are not specific. This can be, you know, whether you are targeting Fortune 500 companies with an account-based marketing play, or you are trying to bring as many users top of funnel for a product-led play, channel mix is always going to be relevant. And the principles that we've discussed will be equally relevant, regardless of if you're PLG or enterprise. So in wrapping up this episode, not too much to talk about on what we would do differently if we were a product-led company or a sales-led company, because these are much more kind of principle-based and less dependent on selling motion as in other episodes. So with that, hopefully there's some great takeaways for you to consider rolling out with your teams. And otherwise, we'll see you at the next episode. As always, if you'd like to see how today's guest scored on the demand efficiency benchmark, you can head to mattermade.co forward slash demand efficiency. Again, that's mattermade.co forward slash demand efficiency, where you'll be able to see all of the guests who have participated in the demand efficiency benchmark survey, segmented by selling motion, industry, fundraising amount, you name it, you can slice and dice, and you can even take the survey for yourself and see how your demand programs stack up when it comes to demand efficiency. We'll see you next time.